0: The Guardian.
1: Hello Science Weekly listeners,
0: Shivani Dave here. We've been digging around our archive again and wanted to share something with you. Sun cream, sun hats and even sunburn. This week in Britain there have been countless claims that we are in a heatwave. Now, while a few days of hot weather and sun might not quite reach the official requirements, the lovely weather might inspire some of us to take a trip to the seaside. But for those of you who can't, we wanted to resurface this episode from 2019, something to help you at least imagine it. We'll be back
1: next week. See you then.
0: As a child, I absolutely loved natural history and I spent a long time exploring on my own around the hills of uh, the Scottish Highlands and also along the coast uh, after I'd moved north to one of the most remote fishing ports in the country at Wick. That gave me the bug really for studying science and I was reading Darwin from an early age. Didn't understand a lot of it, but I certainly read and tried. I studied biology at the University of York uh, in the 1980s and at that point I decided that I wanted to study something exotic and wild and maybe it was having been in the wilds of Scotland that uh, spurred me to want to find somewhere warmer but the two things that really fascinated me were rainforests and coral reefs and I got the chance to study coral reefs first.
1: Callum Roberts is an oceanographer, author, one of the world's leading marine biologists, and a research scholar at the University of York. He spent nearly four decades exploring the underwater world and educating students about coral reefs. Now he's written an account of his career called Reef Life, an underwater memoir. It tells the story of how he came to love these underwater
0: habitats and what we must do to save them. When I first dived on a coral reef in Saudi Arabia, I was captivated by the sheer proximity of life, so much life. When you wade out and you pass through the breaker zone where the the reef meets the open sea and plunge into the water beyond, then there's just this explosion of life. There are these incredible numbers of fish. They hang in clouds, almost storm clouds of fish above the coral. And then there are bigger things that are lurking off the front of the reef and are almost seen as shadows at the edge of visibility, and sometimes those shadows will come up boldly towards you and investigate you, and it turns out that they're reef sharks. So it was that incredible wildlife phenomenon coming to you and accepting you into their world. After a few minutes, the fish just start to ignore you, and you feel that you're able to watch what they do naturally and and to see their natural behaviour.
1: For today's Science Weekly, Callum came into The Guardian to tell me all about coral reefs and his work on them around the world. I started off by asking him what coral reefs are and how they are able to support such a dazzling
0: diversity of marine life. Corals were a conundrum to begin with. The the biologists of the uh, 17th century were confused. Were they animal, vegetable or mineral? And and of course, when you find a dead coral, it's very obviously mineral. The the skeleton is made of calcium carbonate, the same ingredient as chalk. And uh, it turns out that, of course, when you take a coral animal out of the sea, it, it makes the smell of a rotting animal. And uh, that's because there's a layer of tissue over the surface of the skeleton, which is animal in nature. It's very much like a, a colony of tiny sea anemones. But they were right that corals were also plants, because it turns out that the tissues of these animals are filled with microscopic plants, little dinoflagellates. And this is a relationship that goes back 100 million years when the coral got together first first of all with these photosynthesizing microbes. And that gave them a superpower. The superpower was that they could grow faster than any calcifying organism had done before and thereby start to build reefs of such enormous size that they can be seen from space, that they are geological edifices that last through the great history of the planet, you can go hiking in hills that were made of corals in ancient days. And, and to see them today is to think of them as being timeless and eternal. These, these structures are so solid and enduring that you can't imagine that they were ever not there or that they might ever go away. And why is it that they sustain such a
1: richness, such a biodiversity of life?
0: Charles Darwin was very confused about uh, the productivity of coral reefs. In fact, he was one of the first coral reef scientists. Uh, On his voyage around the world, he, he formed a theory about how coral reefs and atolls were created and built. And the paradox that puzzled him was how you can sustain such richness in such low productivity oceanic waters. And so, on the one hand, just offshore, there's hardly anything in the water. It's crystal clear and blue. On the other hand, on the reef, there is this vibrant uh, ecosystem packed with life, and not just uh, in terms of sheer abundance of life, but also in the number of species. His paradox is resolved uh, in terms of abundance and productivity by the fact that coral reefs are very good at tightly recycling nutrients. So what happens is that there's a wall of mouths uh, around a reef, all the fish and invertebrates that feed on plankton. And what they do is they, they extract the plankton from the water flowing over the reef, even though it's relatively sparse, and they trap it there, and then it's recycled very tightly. So you have these oases of high nutrient concentration in a sea which is largely desert by comparison. The richness on a reef, the, the great diversity of species, has been the subject of much speculation over the centuries by uh, scientists, and it still is. There are a number of theories around it, and, and one of them is that you know, as you look at larger and larger areas of habitat, so you get more species in those uh, habitats. So in other words, this is the species area relationship It's close to being a a universal law in ecology. And so if you look at the planet, the tropics where we find the coral reefs have the the biggest area because they, they wrap around the largest extent of the planet. And so there's a great deal of tropical habitat. That tropical habitat survived through repeated glaciations which caused extinctions and loss of species at higher latitudes. And it might also have promoted... The creation of more species because as sea levels rose and fell, it would have established isolated basins within which species split up and divided. And when the sea levels rose again, they would rejoin, and you had more species than you had to start with. So, over time, coral reefs have been accumulating species and not seeing the same rates of extinction as other habitats. And so, we have this extraordinary richness on them. So, these sound like
1: extremely unique environments, but over the time you've been diving on them around the world, you must have seen a lot of changes.
0: I never expected in my career to see the transformation of coral reefs from the uh, intact, wild ecosystems that I first encountered in Arabia to an ecosystem that is globally threatened, even existentially so today. And the reason for that change is not because, you know, there are too many tourists using the reef or localised habitat destruction by developers um, or from, uh, you know, outbreaks of coral-eating starfish, although these are all threats locally. It's because of human-driven global change. As we've released greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the world has warmed up. And that has been incredibly damaging to coral reefs because of the effect that it has on the relationship between the coral and its microscopic seaweeds. The seaweeds give the coral something like 85 or 95 percent of their food, and that's generated through photosynthesis. But if you raise the temperature more than a degree centigrade above the normal thermal maximum for a place, and you keep it there for a couple of months, then the relationship breaks down. It goes from really good to really bad. And uh, if the corals don't get rid of the seaweeds, then they die. Uh, If they get rid of the seaweeds, they starve. So it's a bit of Hobson's choice here. So they choose to get rid of the seaweeds in the short run, hoping that temperatures will come down again and they can pick them up again from the waters, repopulate their tissues, and it'll all be fine. Quite often, though, that doesn't happen and the corals die anyway. And so across the tropics, we've seen huge atmospheric disturbances from the El Nino southern oscillation, this kind of ocean atmosphere phenomenon that drives terrestrial floods and wildfires as well as changing ocean temperatures. That has uh, caused widespread coral death. And and it's a phenomenon known as bleaching because when they get rid of the seaweed microscopic uh, symbionts that live in their tissues, then they go deathly white, bone white. uh, And that's because the the algae give them most of their color. So that mass bleaching has led to mass death. In uh, one episode in 2015 to 16, 60% of the corals in the northern Great Barrier Reef, uh, a, a completely pristine area, were killed. As each of these events happens, we see a loss of uh, vigour in the reefs, a huge loss of coral cover, immense stress, and uh, they they struggle to come back. Corals grow slowly, and as they do come back, you know, you see the the reef repopulating. But the long-term prognosis is not good. If we don't reduce carbon dioxide emissions from uh, fossil fuel use, then... The world is just gonna keep getting warmer, the interval between these catastrophes is going to get shorter, and uh, you know, eventually the coral reefs will not be able to get up again between the blows. I take my students to the Maldives every year in the, in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And uh, in 2016, the, the local area lost on average two thirds of its coral. But one reef in particular was hit much harder than that. And the reason was that it, uh, a lot of its coral was killed, but it was harboring an infestation of Crown of Thorns starfish, which eat coral. And so after the, the bleaching had killed off the coral, uh, the remaining coral then was, um, uh, the, the starfish descended upon it and uh, ate it all. So that by the time I went back there the next year, of the coral was dead. And this was absolutely heartbreaking because it had been the most beautiful of all the reefs. It had had the highest coral cover. Something like two-thirds of the bottom was covered in living corals. Great tables uh, descending like steps into the depths uh, and each one um, surrounded by fish. So seeing it after the corals had died, all the colour had drained out of that reef. It, It looked like a concrete replica reef in a third-rate public aquarium. It it was all there. The corals were in their growth position. They still looked like corals, but they were gray and lifeless. You know, as a scientist, it's fascinating to see such a phenomenon unfolding. And for my students, it was uh, a, a very physical demonstration of the power of global change uh, from greenhouse gas emissions. But it is heartbreaking and tragic to see such a beautiful ecosystem destroyed so completely. Despite what we've
1: heard, it's not all bad news. Coming up in the second half, Callum explains why he's still an optimist. Welcome back to Science Weekly. Earlier we heard marine biologist Callum Roberts on coral reefs and the damage that is being done to them. But I also wanted to talk to Callum about any optimism he might have for the future of our coral reefs. Is it really all doom and gloom for those studying these habitats?
0: I think there are reasons to be cheerful. Uh, coral reefs still do thrive in many parts of the world. The the Northern Red Sea, for example, is uh, seen as a refuge from global warming. It has not yet bleached in any of the, the major events, and um, corals thrive there still. But they're under attack and retreat um, over large areas of the world and, and keeping coral reefs healthy and in business is going to be increasingly difficult. And it's going to be impossible if we don't reduce greenhouse gas emissions to, to net zero effectively. In fact, ideally, we would withdraw some of that released carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because it's already overshot what we know from the geological record, the levels at which coral reefs can, can thrive. That said, there is absolutely no reason to abandon them to their fate, to think that there's nothing we can do. When you give a habitat protection from harmful human uses, from uh, overfishing, uh, from destruction by development, then they can thrive much better than they can if they're exposed to all of those forces. So I think... You know, we need to give coral reefs strong protection over as large an area as we can. We need to reduce the stresses to them. And by doing so, I think the outlook will be much better than if we didn't. In 100 years' time, there will still be life thriving on coral reefs. They may, There may not be as much coral, but the reef structures themselves will still be there. And they will be filled with all sorts of other life that is less affected by warming and by uh, ocean acidification, which is the second thing that carbon dioxide does. When you dissolve carbon dioxide in water, it makes a, a slightly acidic solution. And so uh, that that also is going to impact on corals. The kinds
1: of protection you're talking about being needed for the coral reefs, is, the, is that sort of formal marine reserves that are not only banning fishing, presumably, but... Any other type of activity as well, or, or certain other types of activity, what sort of protection are you really calling for that do you think is needed?
0: Well, what you describe is uh, really strict protection. So no people zones where wildlife alone is is allowed access and can thrive. There, there are a few places in the world where that level of protection is given. One is the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park in Australia, and there are a few zones like that. And within those zones, uh, life is incredibly prolific and and sharks are far more abundant than they are in surrounding areas. But that is impossible in most places. In fact, we have to go for a lower level of protection. Uh, The gold standard really is for full protection from fishing and and removals of uh, marine life, from dumping and from harmful levels of uh, non-consumptive activities like tourism and, uh, you know, recreation, those those things that we uh, do when we go to see wildlife, they have an impact on the wildlife, but you can do them in a sustainable way. So if you give that level of protection, you're going to give reefs the best opportunity of thriving and surviving into the future.
1: You have to look at the land as well, though, don't you? Because you can cause a lot of damage to reefs by sediments running off the land through poor use of soils and so on or poor sort of soil care if you like those are those are issues too right
0: in australia the great barrier reef marine park has been protected since 1975 when it was created and the threats then were seen as oil exploitation and limestone mining people were considering you know carving up the reefs and shipping it away to make cement That didn't happen because of the creation of the park, and the park has existed since then and it's offered very high level of in-water protection. But its Achilles' heel has been the Queensland coast. What has happened there is that uh, land use change, the expansion of agriculture, the increased use of agrochemicals such as fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides has had adverse impacts out at sea because when it rains there, all of that runs off onto the Great Barrier Reef. And so we're seeing impacts even as protection takes place. That has become so severe that in in recent decades, the Great Barrier Reef has lost a lot of its coral just from those kind of pollution effects and the possible knock-on effects of pollution in increasing the survival of uh, -of crown-of-thorn starfish larvae, which leads to outbreaks of these coral-eating predators, which has devastated a lot of reefs in the northern and central sections of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park.
1: We've heard a bit lately about scientists not only becoming angry about what they're seeing being done to the natural world, but also experiencing sort of what's been termed ecological grief. Do you feel that way, or is there some sort of strategy you use for coping with the
0: destruction that you see? I think most of the time scientists try to be uh, dispassionate and objective and they keep the consequences of what they're seeing at an intellectual arm's length. So you you try and separate yourself at some level from the damage and destruction as you're documenting it. But it's very hard. I mean, imagine that you are uh, somebody who is an archaeologist, for example, and you see the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas or Palmyra in Syria, that is absolutely crushing for anyone, and that is happening underwater. On the positive side, we know there are things that we can do to help repair the destruction. It's not a one-time loss uh, and and something never to be regained. Um, There is a lot we can do to develop interventions that make the outcome better for the ecosystems that we're looking at, you know, good protection, better management, will help. And so, what keeps me optimistic is that those prescriptions for what we can do to change the story for wildlife and the natural world uh, is is what keeps me optimistic. You know, I'm I'm engaging with uh, politicians, with diplomats, with non-governmental organisations focused on protecting the environment. We're we're working hard to try and protect the natural world. And in doing so, it gives you a great deal of uh, energy and optimism.
1: Can you still enjoy diving on coral reefs?
0: Well, I do. I, any any coral reef, you know, I can enjoy from uh, the tiny little creatures that are living on a degraded and destroyed reef. Uh, those are still beautiful and wonderful, right up to... The huge sharks and and, uh, fish shoals which thrive on intact and uh, undamaged, unexploited reefs. So you can find pleasure in any sort of reefs. But I I do see the absences. I see the ghosts of the departed uh, from reefs which have have been affected by people. Mm There is absolutely no reason to give up on coral reefs, and we need to know more. We need to understand them better in order to continuously improve the the way that we manage them, the way that we look after them. We need to develop environmentally uh, benign ways of developing coasts so that the corals stay in business even as the climate gets worse for them to thrive. We need to potentially look at uh, alternative solutions like uh, assisted evolution to help corals quicker gain the ability to resist heating and uh, to thrive in the aftermath of catastrophe. So all of these things are good reasons to carry on studying coral reefs. And and I, for one, will continue until uh, I can no longer drag myself out of the water.
1: Special thanks this week to Callum Roberts. We'll include a link to his new book in the episode's description at theguardian.com. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.